Welcome to the Faith Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. We believe today's message will empower you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Here's today's message. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We're going to pick off where I left off about two weeks ago. And the interesting thing about this message is, is what I had planned to preach today before the events that happened last weekend in Charlottesville. And so there's something that I've been praying about and studying since about July. And the word of God is always timely. But it's always amazing still when the Holy Ghost has prepared you to deliver something right on time. So we're going to get into it. We're going to do some more review. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is part two of the art of war. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We said previously that word brothers, the same Greek word adelphos, but in this instance, it referred to military men who were brothers in battle. This was the highest and greatest compliment that could be given to a soldier during the time of Alexander the Great. Thus, to be a brother meant to be a person who was a true comrade. Through the thick and thin of battle, these soldiers stood together, achieving a special level of brotherhood known only by those who stay united together in the heat of the fray. This was also part of what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the early church. So he said to these comrades in arms, be strong in the Lord. That be strong, that phrase means to empower, to increase in strength, to enable, or to infuse with strength. This phrase, be strong, comes from the Greek word dunamu, which is from the Greek word dunamis, which means explosive, miraculous force, and the ability to do miracles. So, dunamu means to be infused with supernatural power. God wants you to be infused with supernatural power. You're not supposed to stand in this day and age by yourself. The only way you can stand and be victorious in this day is if you're infused with the supernatural power of God. So how are you going to be strong in the Lord? How are you going to be empowered by the supernatural power that comes from the Lord? Let's do a little bit more review and go to John 15 before we come back to Ephesians 6. John 15, verse 4. We've referenced John 15, 12 or 13 times since the month of May. And it seems like the Holy Ghost keeps reminding us about something. If the Holy Ghost keeps saying it, we need to make sure we're doing it. John 15, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As we said, abide means to continue. It means to remain. It means to stay connected. It means to make yourself home in. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except you abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. So even if you want to make change in this world or in your community, if you do not abide in Jesus, all of your efforts, even if they're good or well-intentioned, will not produce what they want to produce. And eventually they will become nothing. Because Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he has cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. As we've said several times this summer, God does not cut people off. People cut themselves off from God. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
So in the same way the Heavenly Father loves Jesus, it's the same way Jesus loved you. So he says, continue, remain, stay connected in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my, com- kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. To sum it up, what are the commandments of God? You can sum it up with these three phrases, love God, love people, love yourself. So how did Jesus remain connected to the Father's love? How did he continue and abide in the Father's love? He loved God, he loved people, and he loved himself. Go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. To remain connected to God and to abide in him, you have to walk in love. Which means you have to forgive everybody of everything. The love of God is essential to abiding and remaining connected to God. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love or remains in love or stays connected in love dwells in God and God in him. So if you're going to abide or remain connected to God, you have to continue or abide in love. Without abiding in love, you will not be connected to the supernatural power of God that maintains the armor and enables you to be victorious. So when you step out of love, when you step out of walking in love, you are now putting yourself in a position where Satan can attack and win. Satan is going to attack. There's no question about that. But the question is, will he win when he faces you? The Bible says Satan looks for whom he may devour. So if there's whom he may devour, there are whom he can't devour. And it's not about God. Well, if God steps in, then he can't devour me. That's all nice and religious, but that's not what the Bible teaches. For Satan not to devour you means you have to do something. Don't put everything on God. So, well, in the sweet by and by, God will do something. No, what about you doing something? He says, well, I'm waiting for God to move. God is waiting for you to move. He said, come on, move, Jesus. He said, come on, move, Christian. Go to, back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We said that phrase, power of his might, is the vigor, dominion, and strength of his force and his ability. So in this verse, we're commanded to be empowered and filled with God's supernatural power and the strength of his ability. Why? Put on the whole armor of God, not part of the armor, not some of the armor. Sadly, as so many Christians act like this is a nudist colony. And they run around with no armor, thinking that everything is just going to work out because Jesus loves them. It is true that Jesus loves you, but you need to put some clothes on. It's like the old parable of the naked emperor who believed a lie, and he thought he had the most beautiful clothes on, but everybody knew the king, the emperor, was naked. The demons know if a Christian is naked. You may not know, but they know. So you're wondering why attacks are always so effective against you. It's because you're running around without clothes on. Put some clothes on, Christian. Have some spiritual modesty. See, we get upset if people's outfits aren't like we thought. It's like, oh, no, that outfit is too tight. Or that is too short. Or that is that. That is that. And you can have your debate about that as much as you want. 
but do you have some spiritual modesty? Are you covered up in the spirit? Or is everything hanging out? I'm back. <laughs> Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles or the strategies of the devil. We talked about those five strategies two weeks ago. It's affliction, persecution, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and lust of other things. Those are only five tactics Satan has, and they're all clothed in deception. And part of the deception is that those attacks will work against you. So those are only five tactics that he has. And I encourage you, if you weren't here, to go to the podcast or go to the website so you can listen to it and build your faith concerning it and know how to fight against it. So you have to stay connected after abiding God, abide in love, so you can receive a supernatural power, so you can put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the strategies of the devil. Notice it's not stand, Satan fought, you remain standing at the end so you survive. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being victorious. It's standing victorious. It's called the armor of God for a reason, and that reason is that when God went to battle, or if God goes to battle, he would wear this armor. So he took his armor and gave it to you. The thing is, you can fit it. This is not God's armor junior, that you go to your armor, you go to the junior section or the little kid section. This is the same armor that God wears. And God expects you to get the same results as if he went to battle. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand victoriously against the wiles or the strategies of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That word wrestle means a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and which is decided when the victor is able to withhold his opponent down with his hand upon his neck. So this battle is for dominion. What Satan is trying to do is get you in a position where he can keep his hand on your neck. So, for we wrestled not against flesh and blood. So, flesh and blood is not your real enemy. Flesh and blood is not your real enemy. The Republicans are not your problem. The Democrats are not your problem. The White House is not your problem. The Supreme Court or the Congress is not your problem. Black people, white people, Mexican people are not your problem. That is not who you are fighting. But if your focus gets taken off of who your real enemy is, you will believe a deception and you'll fall into a trap. That means you can't always watch what's on the news. There's a reason why they report what they do. It makes money. Remember it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's the phrase avarice, extreme greed. Come on, if there's a trouble going on in the nation, people are going to watch the news, right? And so if nothing is happening, sometimes you've got to create something. Well, how do you know this? That was my major, broadcast journalism. I watch the news and I know when they don't know nothing. Because they say the same thing over and over again, waiting for news to break. And hopefully that people stay so they watch the commercials so they can make some more money. And just because it's on TV doesn't mean it's true. A number of decades ago, people believed that if it's on TV, it has to be true. But sadly, people still act that way, that if it's on TV, it's true. And if it's on social media, it's true. Come on, please, 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 please. 
Do not believe every meme you see. Well, I saw this on Facebook, and I can create whatever meme I want put on Facebook, and people believe it. You have to research things. Read a book. Come on, please. Don't believe it just because it's posted. Come on, people are becoming vegans now because they watch one documentary on Netflix, but God's been talking to them for decades and still can't get them to do what they're supposed to do. And it's an emotional decision, and emotional decisions don't last. How do you know that? Every year people make emotional decisions to lose weight. They're in the gym at the beginning of the year. They do their cleanses at the beginning of the year, but by the time Valentine's Day comes, that chocolate is too good. And a few months later, they're going, wasn't I supposed to lose weight? I think I gained extra weight. You can't make an emotional decision about things because emotional decisions don't have any power. So that means all your information can't come from the news media. And if you're going to read the news and watch the news media, which I do, compare it. Look at multiple channels to see what they say. I remember I was watching a press conference from some official, and I, had, I was in the gym, so I had multiple channels on. I was the only one in there, so I'm watching on two or three different channels. There's one person saying one thing, but all three p channels are saying something different based on the audience who's watching them. So if you're going to watch, watch for yourself and think for yourself. Don't let the commentators tell you how you're supposed to think. You watch and make your own decision. You read and make your own decision. Where's my message? Here we go. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So remember who your enemy is. One of the things you'll see is it defines the enemy. But we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That word against here in Greek means face to face. So this is face to face combat with trying to take you down and Satan's trying to put his hand over your neck. We review what those different levels of Satan's hierarchy is. But one I want to remind you today is what the rulers of darkness is also translated from the Greek word, which means a boot camp, which is marshaled or trained troops organized for a specific purpose. So there are spirits that are organized for one specific purpose. There are spirits of sickness. Why? Jesus cast one out called a spirit of infirmity. It caused that woman to be bowed over all those years. She wasn't possessed with it, but it grabbed onto that piece of her body. There are spirits of division and spirits of racism. There are spirits of fear. There are spirits of perversion. The spirits of immorality, who the whole purpose is to advance whatever their category is. And you wrestle against those things every day. So remember who your real enemy is. And one of the number one keys about spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare must be viewed through the triumph of Jesus Christ. Spiritual warfare must be viewed through the triumph of Jesus Christ. You are not warring to get the victory. You are enforcing the victory Jesus won for you. You are not warring to get the victory. You are enforcing the victory Jesus won for you. So we looked at the first few pieces of armor two weeks ago. Let's pick up with verse 16. And above all, or in front of all, take the shield of faith. These shields 
were not many little shields that didn't cover anything. These were huge shields that covered the full body of the Roman soldier. They were wide, they were long, so that a soldier can hide behind it and be protected from the attack of the enemy. These shields were made from several layers of animal skin. And you know, one layer of leather is tough, but imagine several layers of leather. How much it'll protect them in battle. But the thing is, after a while, leather or animal skin can become brittle. It can break. So every day, the Roman soldier would begin their day by taking oil and applying it to the shield so the shield would stay strong. Your faith is like that shield. It requires daily applications of the anointing of God. Daily time spending time in the presence of God so that your faith doesn't become brittle and crack under pressure. Now, one of the things about that shield is when they would go to battle, they would dump, dunk it in a river so it would be submerged with water. Why? Notice what that verse says. So in front of all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench or extinguish with water all the fiery darts of the wicked. So back in that time, the enemies would fire flaming arrows, and some of the arrows had hollow points that had flammable liquid on the inside so that it would hit have a mini explosion and catch people on fire. But if a shield that had been submerged in water hit it, it may poke through a little bit, but it won't have the same damage. What does that sound like? No weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. It doesn't mean it won't be formed. It doesn't mean it won't be fired. It just means it can't do what it's supposed to do. And so our shield of faith submerged in the water of the word it's always effective. You can't say, well, I had faith 10 years ago. That's great, but do you have faith today? Faith is like a leaky substance. You must always be building it. Because if you don't, you'll run into a problem you can't handle. And you can't depend on your faith 20 years ago to get you through a trial today. You have to be consistently and continually building your faith. And the Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that means every day you need to be in the word. You need to read at least one chapter out loud a day. And then we took it up more this spring, and we said, listen to at least one message preached today. Because what happened, faith is coming into your heart. You're renewing your mind, and you'll be able to stand against the attacks of the enemy. And take the helmet of salvation. A helmet has a very simple purpose, to protect your head. That's important, because how many know if you lose your head, you can't fight? It's not deep. And so when they were sling axes, it couldn't cut off their head because the helmet was so big and went down to their shoulders. You must protect your mind with what the word says about salvation so that in the battles that you face in life, you don't lose your head. You can't lose your cool. You have to be able to think according to the word of God so that you can be victorious every day. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This word sword is not talking about one of those long swords you see in those crusader movies. It's talking about a sword that was probably a little bit less than two feet. It was like a dagger. It was meant for up, front, close, and personal battle. And it says the word of God, the rhema of God, which means a specific word. So when you're fighting the enemy, you don't just pick up the Bible and start quoting scriptures. You do like Jesus did in the wilderness. 
specific scripture for the situation you're dealing with. He says, it is written. And the only way you can say it is written is if you actually read what was written. So if you're going through something, find a specific scripture and use that. And battle effectively. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, or pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. In the month of September, we're going to begin 30 days of prayer where we're going to teach on prayer. We're going to take time to pray together, and so we're going to go more in detail about what this means. But where it's concerned for the art of war, We've gone through every piece of armor that was on the Roman soldier except the lance that was on his back. The lance, of course, is meant to deal with enemies that are far off. And so in this case, there is a lance of prayer that you can pick off enemies before they get to you. And you can use the lance not just for your sake, but also to help others. You can see family members or friends or coworkers or neighbors who are going through a tough time and you can begin to pray for them and pick off some of their attackers through the lance of prayer. But we'll talk more about that next month in our 30 days of prayer. So we see the weapons of the believer. They're given to you by God so that you can be victorious no matter the attack of the enemy. And in order to be victorious in this life, you must be connected to God, his power, his love, and wear and utilize all of the armor. A good soldier must have offensive strategies and defensive strategies. And like Sun Tzu said, one of the first rules of war is know your enemy. You can't fight an enemy you don't understand or you don't know. And so what we began to do the last time, and we'll do some more today, is understand the tactics of the enemy and what is he trying to do to you? What is he trying to do to this congregation? And so when I took time on vacation last month and was praying, and over the last few weeks, even before I went to Zimbabwe, there were three areas I know the Lord put on my heart to deal with. And the thing is, a lot of times people think that the only way God speaks to you is because you heard a voice. Now, yes, God speaks in your spirit and hears voice in there, but you learn as you walk with God, you can watch things and see what God is doing. And so two of these areas I already had in my heart And then I watch it be confirmed as people in the congregation told me the same story. Or my staff members told me the same story about individuals they encountered who go here or used to go here. And they ask them, hey, where have you been? And they respond in two similar responses. And when I kept watching this and praying about this, I said, this is not an isolated few. Because if it's one person, you get it. But when you keep hearing the story again and again, it's an attack of the enemy. And the first area I keep hearing about was shame. Shame. The attack of shame. Now, what is the attack of shame? First, let's define what is shame. Shame is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, etc., done by oneself or another. It's a sense of failure in the eyes of another person. It carries with it the intense pain, feeling unworthy, disconnected, and unloved both by God or other people. The tactic of shame is part of the cares of this world's strategy. It is connected to worrying what people think about you. And so there are people who are involved or used to be involved, and they messed up in their personal life. 
And so they think, I can't come back to church because I'm ashamed of what I have done. So what are people going to think about me? Because they know what I did. And there are other people who years ago they left here, went to another church, and stopped going there. And they said, we know we're supposed to come home, but we are ashamed of how we left. And we're concerned what people are going to think about us when we come back home. And so you talk about them, and I hear the story again and again, and they said, I haven't been to church for two years. I haven't been to church for three years. And the thing is, most of these people aren't people I have one-on-one interactions with. I hear these stories from a number of people in the congregation and a number of people on staff. And so what is the enemy doing? Attacking through shame to keep people from coming where they're supposed to be. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not looking to judge you. Why? He put all the punishment of your sin on Jesus. Jesus was judged for you. God is not looking to judge you. You have to get rid of the image of God looking like Zeus on the throne with a lightning bolt ready to zap you every time you mess up. He put all your punishment on Jesus. And he, God is determined to bless you because he loves you extravagantly. God is not looking to shame you. Isaiah 56, 50 verse 6, talks about how Jesus did not turn his back from the smiter or hide his face from shame. Hebrews 12, 2 talks about Jesus endured the cross, despising or thinking little of the shame. Everything about the cross was shameful. The Romans called the cross the extreme penalty and the humiliation. In Greek and Roman times, a person would insult a person by saying to them to have a death on the cross. Everything about the cross was shameful. Greeks loved beauty and art and thought the cross was disgraceful and disdained it. The law taught of the Jews that dying on the tree was cursed. The Romans abhorred the crucifixion so much that no Roman citizen could be crucified on the cross. Only non-citizens and the lowest of the criminals could receive the extreme penalty and the humiliation. And yet that shame was put on Jesus. He bore your shame. He bore your guilt. He bore your sin. He bore your sickness and disease. So whatever Jesus carried for us, we don't have to carry. If you have a friend and you're moving, and they can lift up that couch all by themselves, why are you trying to lift it up? Jesus carried your shame. If he carried it, you're not supposed to be ashamed. You're not supposed to be guilty. You don't have a right to be guilty anymore because Jesus was guilty for you. So don't let people shame you because you made a mistake. Now, that doesn't mean go do whatever you want to do. It's like, I'm under grace. Yes, we're under grace, but you have a responsibility towards grace. But God is not looking to shame you because Jesus took your shame. Go to Romans chapter 10. Dealing with the attack of shame.
Romans chapter 10. We know verse 8 and 9 talks about, and 10 talks about how we are born again. But notice what it says right after we see how we are born again. For the scripture says, whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. You have no reason to be ashamed. It doesn't matter what you've done. Don't carry the shame of it. Don't carry the guilt of it. Because after you repented and asked God to forgive you, he wiped it away, and God doesn't remember it. So you don't have to feel ashamed coming into his presence saying, God, I messed up. Don't you remember what I did 10 years ago? He says, what are you talking about? Jesus dealt with it. So don't carry the shame. God is not looking to shame you. He's looking to love you. So the attack of shame, but also the attack of discouragement. And here's something else I've heard from a number of people, that they just dropped off the face of the earth. Like not because of something that happened at church or because someone at church. They said something happened in my life. I was believing for God to do this and it didn't happen. And so I'm discouraged and I'm just not coming. Or others, well, I'm trying to get my life together because this happened. And so they stay far away from church because they are discouraged. And you hear it again and again. So what has Satan been doing? Marshalling demons together to shame people and discourage people, to keep them from the place they're supposed to be. Because that if they remain connected in a family environment, the family can protect them and help them. What Satan tries to do is isolate individuals so he can pick them off. And so he tries to shame people into isolation and get people discouraged so they back up and they're by themselves. It's an attack from hell, and we must recognize it. And as I began to recognize it, I reached out to our intercessory team and our prayer people here. And I said, here are two of the attacks the enemy's using. I want you to focus that on prayer and get these people back home. Because there's a natural response, but there's also a spiritual response. So we began handling the spiritual response. The word discouraged in the Bible is known as being dismayed. And one of the things it says again and again through the Bible in Deuteronomy, as well as in Joshua and Isaiah, God says, don't be dismayed because I'm with you. And so if you're feeling discouraged today, don't be discouraged any longer because God is with you. He has not left you. He has not turned his back on you. How do you know God hasn't turned, back on me, my, turned his back on me, preacher? You don't know what I did. God turned his back on Jesus. So he would never have to turn his back on you. Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Standing on Psalm 22. God turned his back on Jesus. Jesus knew that was coming and received that so that God would never turn his back on you. God has not left you. Though you make your bed in hell, he's there. Though you make your bed on the mountaintop, he's there. Whether you screwed up your life, God is there. And he's waiting for you to turn to him so he can get you out of your mess. Why? He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. So God has not turned his back on you. He's not forgotten you. So be like David in 1 Samuel 30 and encourage yourself in the Lord. 
Stir yourself up again that what God said would happen will happen in my life. If this is the year of fabulous outpourings from heaven, I'm going to receive the rain. If God said this was going to happen by the end of the year, that's what's going to happen in my life. I will not be discouraged. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. If it's a good fight, that means I win. So I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep pressing. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep praying because God is faithful to his word and he loves me and everything he said is coming to pass in my life. I refuse to be discouraged. That is what you have to do consistently, especially if you're under the attack of discouragement. Don't think it's just you being tired. Satan's trying to discourage you. Because he knows if you keep going, he knows that what's going to happen by the time we get into our new building. So what he tries to do, stop us every way he can because he knows that what's going to happen as we hit our 25th year. We're looking into the horizon of the ministry. The greatest years that the past 25 years pale in comparison to what God is about to do. So he'll do whatever he can to try to stop it because he sees that if they get to that point, I'm going to lose some territory. So he'll try to discourage you in your personal life because he sees that if you hold on a little bit longer, you're going to have a victory that's going to cost him. Remember, Daniel stood in prayer for three weeks and didn't see an answer. That's because Satan was trying to hold back the answer. Don't be so carnal, so natural, think it's just because you don't have enough good luck or you don't think you know the right people. Understand you are in a war. Understand you are a soldier. Understand this is battle. You have an enemy that hates you. But rejoice because you have a God who loves you and he's on your side and he's fighting for you. So don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So you have to resist discouragement. You have to say, I will not be discouraged. I will not be depressed. I'm not going to be down today. I choose joy. I choose to turn to Jesus right now and receive rest, refreshing for my soul. You have to do that throughout the day so that you don't give in to depression and discouragement. It's an attack, so you must fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Remember, we're not trying to get the victory. We're enforcing the victory Jesus already gave to us. So that means we keep fighting knowing what's going to happen. That when it's all said and done, we win. When it's all said and done, we got the victory. Because where it concerns us is just a matter of time. So that's why we have so much faith that we dance when it looks like we're losing. We shout when it looks like we should be crying. We take a lap around the building when it looks like we should be weeping. Why? Because we know our God is faithful. So you have to rejoice every day. And again, I say rejoice. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if Satan can take your joy, he can stop your faith, and he can take what you have. So maintain your joy. Life was not meant to go through sober. The world needs alcohol. You got the Holy Ghost. You can stir up the joy on the inside. 
You can laugh by faith even when you don't feel like laughing. Because laughter will be an expression of your faith, believing that God's going to fill your mouth with laughter and turn your captivity, as the Old Testament says. He will turn it for you because he's faithful and he loves you. I didn't say because you did everything right. I said because he loves you. Anything that God gives us through Jesus as a gift is grace. And it's by grace that it may be by faith. So that means you receive the grace by faith, believing that the work of Jesus was enough to fix your life. Because he loves you. So don't be discouraged. Don't be ashamed. Fight the good fight and win every day. Discouragement comes as a response to pressure. It comes as part of Satan's two tactics of pressure, affliction and persecution, which is pressure brought by circumstance and pressure brought by people. It's wrapped in deception. The deceptions proclaim that you cannot defeat this attack and that it will never end. The result is if you believe that deception is you become discouraged. So don't believe that deception. Know the truth that you are on the winning side. So if some of you, because some of you have talked to me about this, and you know those who have stopped coming to church because of feelings of shame and discouragement, Go get your brothers and sisters. Go get them. Tell them it's time to come home. You run into them in the mall, at the store, at Starbucks, stop playing around. It's time to come home. So, well, I don't know. I'm coming to get you. I need you to be ready at 930 because prayer starts at 950. Come on. Go get them. I didn't say give them an option. Say it's time to come home. Because we're not going to shame anybody. This is home. No matter how long you've been away from home, when you come back home, it feels like home. So tell them we're here with open arms. We're not judging anybody. It's time to come home, Faith. Because we have a lot of things to do so we can make Jesus famous. So you know them, tell them to come home. And now, here's what something I'm also willing to do. These individuals, especially those who haven't been here for a few years, they may have a lot of concerns. Tell them I'll meet with every one of them. Tell them to call the office and ask for Ms. Petra, and I'll sit down with each and every one of them. It's time for the family to come back together again. We'll talk more about this next week, but what God has for faith will come to pass. It doesn't matter what people do. It doesn't matter what people say. What God has for us is for us. And we ain't mad at nobody. We wish the best for every single person that's ever been part of this 25-year ministry. And may God bless them and expand them. We ain't angry at nobody. We ain't mad at nobody. But for those who are discouraged and dismayed or aren't at church, it's time for them to come home. Come back to the family. We love you. We haven't forgotten about you. So go get them and bring them, and tell them about Throwback Sunday. So those two areas. Now, what about racism and the spirit of division? So while I was in Zimbabwe last week, we just had a wonderful meeting, talking about the love of God. We talked about racism and the spirit of division, and how the spirit of division operates. Come out of that meeting, get back to the hotel, it connects to Wi-Fi, and the news began to appear on my phone. I see people marching with tiki torches. I see people with Nazi flags. 
I see this, and the first thing in my mind, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then I began to read more and read the different things, and then I turned off the news. I was like, because i got to prepare for tomorrow morning. Because my first response was anger. I was upset. I was hot. And I wanted to say something, post something the other minute. God says, don't do that. Go to bed. So I went to bed. And I responded the next morning. And I said that I was going to address more of it today. So let's talk about what is racism. First, go to Matthew 24, verse 7. I need a little bit more time, so you guys can stick with me so I can deal with it. Matthew 24. One of the things the church in Zimbabwe prayed for me before I left is that everything I poured out to them is going to come back to you guys in a great way. And they said, thank you, by the way, for letting me go and minister to them for that week. Matthew 24, verse 7. Notice what Jesus is prophesying about the end of time. When he studied Matthew 24, you see that every sign he gives are compared to birthing pains, compared to labor pains, that a labor pain comes more in frequency and intensity as it gets closer to the delivery of the baby. So whatever he's listing as a sign grows in intensity and frequency before the return of Jesus. Now, God's not saying I cause these things. Now, if I tell you that we're driving down the street and trying to give you directions how to get here, and I said, well, when you see the Chick-fil-A, you know you're close and don't miss it, you got to turn right. Did I cause the Chick-fil-A to be created there? No, that was just a sign that I gave you. So Jesus gives signs to let you know what's about to happen in the earth. So he says, Matthew 24, verse 7, for a nation shall raise, rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The word nation is a Greek word ethnos, which means ethnicity or race. So Jesus is saying that at the end of time, there will be racial conflict. Race will turn against race, and they will fight each other. Now, you can view this one or two ways. You can say, well, Jesus said it was going to happen at the end of time, and well, that's just what happens. Come on, Lord Jesus. Come on back, Jesus. Oh, you saw what happened in Charlottesville. Racism, Jesus. Racism. Just come back, Jesus. Now, you can do that and be ineffective in this life. Now, here's another way to respond. I go to 2 Timothy 3. Because none of you actually believe that. And how do I know that? 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I know every parent in here does not believe that. How do I know that? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous or dangerous times shall come. What's the sign? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. The Bible says that in the last days, people will be disobedient to their parents. Now, how many of you have children? How many of you think it's okay for your children to be disobedient to you? No. Wait a minute. You don't think that's okay? But the Bible says that in the last days, it's going to happen. So when your kid is acting a mess at home, you don't say, it's okay, the Bible says you're going to act a mess. <laughs> None of you are like that. You say, well, but the Bible says it's going to happen, right? What do you do? You use your parental authority and you deal with it, right? Why is racism any different? Jesus said it's going to happen in the last days, but it doesn't mean you just watch it happen. Deal with it. The 
government can't fix it. It's the job of the church. So just like parents will use their authority over disobedient children, use your spiritual authority where racism is concerned. So how is racism defined? Because you have to define terms. Because everybody says, oh, you're racist. But if you don't know what the word racist means, you don't know if someone's racist or not. Racism is defined as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. It's prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. The word racism does not appear in the Bible, but the concept is, and examples of racism is. Well, who do we know about that have racist issues? Moses' siblings. Well, what was wrong with Mary and Aaron? They were mad that Moses married a black woman. And God dealt with it. And Mary's like, you, you're like, Miriam, you got a plow room with color? You're going to be stark white for seven days. God never addressed Moses or his wife. Because in the eyes of God, they're all his kids. We all come from Noah, who came from Adam. You had other races. You have Jonah, who was racist. He did not want to go preach to Nineveh. He wanted them all to die. Because he says, if I go preach, they're going to believe, and you're going to forgive them. So I want them to die and go to hell, so I ain't going. I'm going to go as far from Nineveh as I can get so this city can burn and go to hell. Let me get on this boat. That's racist. We said, well, why was Jonah so racist? Some commentators said, the Ninevites, because they were a violent of people, invaded the land and killed some of his family members. And so his racism was based on past hurt. And now he blames an entire race of people for the actions of a few. Now back. You see it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. The Hebrews versus the Grecians. Who were the Grecians? They were Greek-speaking Hebrews or Jews who grew up outside of the land of Israel. And so Satan is trying to stop the church, so he stirs up strife, and the Grecians complain about the Hebrews saying, you take care of the widows of the Jews better than you take the widows of the Grecians. That's still a form of racism. And the thing is, in our American mindset, anytime we hear racism, we think black and white, but it's not a black and white issue. It's only a black and white issue in America. You go to certain places in the world, and because you're an American, you can't tell them apart. But they can be racist against each other, and you think they look the same. Racism. Galatians 5. Is it a spiritual problem? Is it a soul problem? Is it a natural problem? What does the Bible actually say about it? Galatians 5. See, even Paul was a little bit racist. He didn't like Gentiles. Who was Gentiles? Anybody who wasn't a Jew. He didn't want to preach to them. He wanted the Jews to be saved. And God said, I got other plans for you. I need you to go preach to the Gentiles. Go to the people you don't like because I got a job for you. 
So you better be careful not liking other people because God may send you to them. Galatians 5. We looked at these works of the flesh. There's 17 in the list. Picking up with verse 20, it says, Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings. Variance means a contention, a quarreling, or always fighting. It means strife. Emulations is envious or contentious rivalry. That you're envious of another race because of their success. Strife, this word means self-seeking of political office by unfair means or putting yourself up while tearing other people down, making one people superior while saying everyone else is inferior. The word heresies here means factions or always breaking up into different cliques and excluding others. As I said before, it's not a black-white issue because you can be black and not like light-skinned people. They don't have to do nothing to their hair. Why do I have to do all this to my hair? You can be black and not like dark black people. It doesn't, it's not a black-white issue. What is it? Satan taking differences and magnifying them. So whether you call it racism or colorism or whatever you call it, it is a combination of these works of the flesh. So racism or colorism is a work of the flesh. And we said previously that if you stay in the works of the flesh, you will open the door for a demonic spirit that specializes in that category to entertain you. So racism is a physical sin flesh problem. But it's also a mentality because you have to be trained to think that way. To think that someone is less than you or even above you because of how they look. Your mind is renewed by those images. And so if the only way you define beauty is by watching what they put on TV, then you'll believe that you may be inferior because you don't look a certain way or you're not a certain weight or a certain height. And the thing is, you say, well, they always put just one group up. It always changes with history. Whoever has political power is what they put up. You're like, well, I look at these pictures from the Middle Ages and the Crusade times, and everybody in the Bible looked like they're from Europe. They weren't from Europe. They're from the Middle East. Why did they paint them that way? They painted them like the people who were around them. So don't define what the Bible actually says by people who lived in the 1300s. They're just creating art. Art is not what the Bible says. The Bible is what the Bible says. Don't believe art over the Bible. And don't believe in these crazy memes that have no historical backup. We took time in March to handle a lot of these issues. You can get it all on the podcast, the I Believe series. Say, so what does the Bible actually say? And you have to understand, why was racism a mentality in America? Now, you can't say things like, well, racism wasn't here until President Obama became president. That's just stupid. How do I know that? It's been here since the 1600s. 
And it wasn't always a black-white issue. There is black-white issues, but the Native Americans and the Trail of Tears. The Chinese slaves forced to do the railroads. The Japanese Americans in internment camps in the 40s. It's not a black-white issue. It's a people issue. It's a mentality that has to be challenged and has to change. So you have to renew your mind to the value of all people. And one thing about the Civil War, I think I taught on this last year, the Civil War was about slavery. You said states' rights. Yes, states' rights own slaves. Please read history. I, see, I'm a historian. I like documentaries. I can flip by PBS and see a documentary, and I'll sit there for hours. I just like history. And so, I've read the Confederate Party platform. I saw what they believe and what they stood for. And so it was a war concerning that. Now, not everybody who fought on the Confederacy owned slaves or believed in that. So don't say everybody who fought in the Civil War, everybody fought for that reason. Everybody had different reasons they were fighting. And when you study it out, the Civil War was judgment from God on America on the issue of slavery. Because a great awakening began in the 1700s, and out of that awakening came the United States of America. But that awakening stopped too short. The Holy Ghost began to move, and the gifts of the Spirit began to flow, and people said, we don't believe in that, and so the awakening stopped. Now, if the awakening continued, America would not have been born as a nation of freedom with the birth defect of slavery. Because the awakening began to work on the free and the slave. They all started getting saved. God started moving in wonderful ways. But the spirit of division has a doctrine, because Second Timothy talks about the doctrines of demons. And so what it did was the only way to keep a people who now is awakened to God, to keep people enslaved is you have to teach them that. Charles Finney says a very eloquent quote, and I will quote it all, says that if there's problems in the nation, if the government is not right, if the people's personal lives are not right, if the domestic policy is not right, the pulpit is to blame. And so when you study out, there are entire denominations that were started to keep slavery in place. Now, I'm not calling them by names because they publicly repented and asked God for forgiveness. And God uses them today. And so you have in American history, especially in the 1800s, some pulpits preaching that it's right to enslave others is what God wants. Twisting the word of God for their own purposes. But at the same time in other pulpits, you have people preaching it's wrong and God's going to judge America if they don't repent. It's both sides. God has been dealing with this nation for a long time. And people think judgment always means war or some type of disaster. Sometimes judgment is just shining the light of what goes on in the darkness. If you were here with us in 2015, all throughout the year I preached, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. How many of you guys remember me saying that a lot? And I didn't know what that judgment was going to look like. I just knew judgment was coming. We are watching things being judged. And judgment is not always a bad thing. Because when judgment is done... God's people are better for it. And God rewards his people. 
Judgment is just another word for harvest. Well, there are things in America being judged, so don't be afraid. When you see things on the news, number one, do not be afraid. For God has not given you the spirit of fear. Don't start saying we're going back to the days of Jim Crow. Don't start saying, well, it's going to go back like what happened in the 20s. No, it's not going that way. Racism is being judged. You're hearing its death rattle. So don't open your mouth and give it life saying, I'm afraid this is going to happen. You can't be afraid if you want God to use you. What's also concerning about this racism as a work of the flesh and the mentality? Because it's also a spiritual problem. How do you know that James chapter 3 talks about there was envy and strife. There's every evil work, and it's from devilish wisdom. So as we said before, there are spirits of racism, spirits of bigotry, spirits of hatred. And so racism is a spiritual problem, but it's also a mental problem, and it's also a problem of the flesh. So it has to be addressed in all three areas. And one word I give you to caution you is don't be so in a rush to see something happen that you forget about being spiritual people. You are spirits, you have a soul, which is your mind, will, emotions, and you live in a natural body. So there are some solutions that begin as spiritual solutions. So yes, you do need to pray. Yes, you have to refuse to fear. But you also have to renew your mind concerning what you believe. First John 4 told us in verse 20, you can't love God and hate your brother. So it's like God is love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knoweth God. So if we're going to be effective, we have to walk in love. Romans 13 tells love fulfills the law, and love works no ill towards its neighbor. Ephesians 4 tells us to forgive others like Jesus forgave us. So you have to walk in love and forgive everybody of everything. You have to refuse to be offended. You have to refuse to be offended no matter what you see. Because you will have multiple opportunities to be offended. You can't be afraid and you can't be offended. Why Mark 4 talked about when people are offended, they're going to lose the production of the word. So you have to refuse to be offended. It doesn't mean you can't be angry. It just means you can't be offended. Offense is a moment or an event. Being offended is a choice. Jesus says offense comes to everybody. Whether you are offended or not depends on your choice. So refuse to fear. Refuse to be offended. Resist the fear. Why? Love is strong enough to enable you to fight for change no matter how long it takes. Remember what the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4? It says, be angry and sin not. So being angry is not a sin. But letting the anger direct your lifestyle will lead you to sin. So anger is not a biblically sufficient emotion to bring forth social justice and social change. Why? It says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So according to the Bible, you can't be angry for more than a day. And if anger drives your emotion for social justice and social change, you can't effectively do it because you got to forgive and can't be angry anymore. 
And anger, if you stay angry that long, it's going to destroy your body. So what is strong enough to call for social justice and social change? Love. Because 1 Corinthians 13, 7, the amplified version, says love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances and endures everything without weakening. In order to be effective in a stand against racism and strife, you have to examine yourself and make sure your heart is right. Because you can't be so mad at racism, but you racist yourself. You say, well, I'm not racist. If you would be upset if your child marries someone of another race, you racist. Examine your heart. And it's not a black-white issue, as I said. If you are upset of people of another color coming in this country because you think they're going to steal your jobs, that's an issue. We have people in this church of multiple races. And that's how it's supposed to be. We're going to look like heaven. We have people in this here who are from actually African descent. We have eight to ten different African nations represented in this church. Then we have Africans who've been here for 400 years. And you know what you would, they would tell you if you talk to other Africans in Africa? You ain't African, you American. You think very American. If you go out this country, you will realize how American you actually are. We are a very unique people, and we are a very loud people. If you ever want to notice a group of Americans, look for the loud people. We really are the loudest wherever we go. And we don't realize we're that loud. But then when we get outside the country, everybody's quieter. We go, oh, is that me in this restaurant? <laughs> so we are a diverse group of people. We are committed to unity, but not uniformity. That means we agree to love others, to love God, to love ourselves, to walk under the banner of making Jesus famous, but we're not going to agree about everything. That's why we have Republicans and Democrats and independents in this church. You don't agree with each other about how each other votes. We're not calling for uniformity. We're calling for unity. You may not understand why each person voted the way they did or how they view issues they see on the news. But your job is not to judge each other, but it's to love each other enough to walk in unity, and on some issues we agree to disagree. And in this nation, we have to get to a place for the sake of our republic, for the sake of our democracy, where we can debate and have civil discussion in love. You have to be able to express your point in love. The Bible says speak the truth in love, not just speak the truth. So that means when you share facts, when you share your opinion, it has to be rooted in love. And one of the things, as I'll say this as I begin to close, is the best friend of the spirit of division is ignorance. The best friend of the spirit of division is ignorance. Because ignorance will cooperate with the spirit of division, not knowing it. It tells us not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. So you can say something that's ignorant and not be racist. It just means you're ignorant. It means you don't have knowledge about the subject. 
Doesn't mean you're a bad person. You could be the sweetest, most loving person, but in this area, you're ignorant. And the only way you overcome ignorance is you learn and you spend time with people who have different opinions than you. So when you're discussing things, because we have a multicultural church, we've got multicultural people watching online, you have different phrases that are now politically charged. You have someone who can say, make America great again, and some people begin to go, what in the world are they talking about? Because you start saying, well, when was America great? Where, what day you want to go back to? Come on. See, the thing is, one of my jobs as a pastor is to watch out for your soul. So that's what I'm taking time to do, to watch out for your soul, because this is the things you're dealing with every day. But then you have other people on the other side that are offended if you say black lives matter. Now, I like what some bishop said about this. He says, we probably could improve the phrase by saying black lives matter too. Because if you're in a neighborhood and a house is on fire, you don't proclaim that all houses matter. Your focus is on what is on fire. And so during the Trail of Tears, I wouldn't say black lives matter, I would say Native American lives matter. During the Japanese internment, we would have stood and said that Japanese lives matter. Because all, the truth is all lives do matter. But one of the things, if you speak the truth, you have to, in love, you have to understand people from other perspectives. Because if someone says to you, black lives matter, and you reply to them, well, all lives matter, what you're just saying is your opinion does not matter because everybody's important. And so although what you said is true, the two phrases are true, black lives matter and all lives matter, both phrases are truth. But how you respond to one another determines if productive conversation comes forth or if we go back further into the spirit of division. So adjust how you say things. You'll have people who talk to you about experiences that you cannot even relate to. This is not the worst time of racism in this country. Nowhere close. We got people in here who marched with Dr. King. We have people in here who saw crosses burned on their yard. This is not the worst it's ever been. And so when you have these conversations, you can talk about how you feel and what this means to you. I had a pastor who's in the city, a friend of mine, who when things happened last year, he reached out to me and he, says, he said, I think you can address it better. Can you record a video to share, so I can share it with my church? Because we have a multicultural church, but I just want you to share from your perspective. What is that? Unity, not uniformity. I had another pastor that reached out to me this week after everything, and he says, I am so sorry for everything that's happened. I'm sorry for my silence in the past, and I'm gonna do everything I need to do to help make everything better. But the thing is, people ain't gonna report that. That doesn't make money. The church coming together and walking in unity, that does not make money. Church splits, that makes money. Church drama, that makes money. But we can't yield to the spirit of division. We can't yield to the rhetoric of racism. So as a spiritual thing, yes, we pray, yes, we forgive, yes, we resist fear, yes, we walk in love. Because as you study the Corinthian church, strife in the Corinthian church robbed them of their spiritual maturity and revelation. It opened the door to more sin, sickness, and premature death. Strife and racism will do the same thing in your life and your house. So we can't participate with the spirit of division. We can't walk in ignorance. So what do we do? Do we march? Do we protest? Do we 
not watch the NFL? What do we do? And you can have your opinion whether someone stands or salutes at the flag. But don't judge someone else for it. Don't say, oh, they're a horrible person because they didn't stand. Don't make the flag your idol. Now, I stand and salute the flag, but that's my choice. Don't enforce your political beliefs as doctrine from the gospel. We're here to proclaim the gospel of the lion and the lamb, not of the donkey and the elephant. So you can have your other opinions, and that's okay. But don't enforce them on others just because you don't agree with them. Seek understanding. Seek unity, not uniformity. Walk in love. Forgive everybody of everything. So what's our natural response? Yes, you have to make a stand. Yes, you have to say, I ain't participating in that. Yes, you have to say that, yeah, that was wrong. You have to call things out as wrong. You can't deflect. That someone says, well, this is wrong. He says, well, what about what someone else did? That's deflecting. That's not love. That's like a little kid. You corrected them on something. This is what so-and-so did this. You said, I didn't ask what so-and-so did. I'm talking about what you did. So don't deflect. Walk in love. Forgive everybody of everything. And most important of all, seek God how you're supposed to individually respond. Don't just go with a culture or a trend or a hashtag. Because hashtag activism may bring awareness, but it doesn't bring change. You need to begin your day and say, God, what do you want me to do about this as an individual? One of the things we're doing as a community, we've been working for the last few years as Faith Christian Center, we're already working in our new area, is to position ourselves in the community to deal with these things. That we've gone to meetings. There's one meeting I went to last year, and I went to meetings just to learn so I can be a better blessing to the community. And so they're talking about something. They say, hey, Pastor Butler, what should we do about this? And I want to go, yeah, Pastor Butler, what should we do with that? Oh, that's me. So Holy Ghost, what should we do about this? <laughs> what happened? We're positioning ourselves to bless neighborhoods. We're positioning ourselves to deal whatever hell throws our way so that we can be victorious and our neighborhood and our community is better for it. I do not believe in being an ivory tower. People go, oh, that's the church. Aren't they so great? I believe in going where the people are and making a difference. And so when you do that, you can always post everything you do. Because if you post everything you do, people can try to stop you. So some things you do while no one knows. And then you talk about it a couple years later. Hey, you remember what you saw in the news? Oh, yeah, we were there, but we just couldn't tell you yet. So we're doing things as a church family. And as I talk to other people and other organizations, they said, tell your church thank you. I got an email sometime this year from a person I never met before. I don't even think they came to the church. They said, we see what your church is doing in the community, and we are so thankful. Please keep up the good work. They never came here before, but they saw faith people doing faith things. So there's individual responsibility you have to seek God on. And there's other things. You can pray for us as a church to handle things the way we should because there's things we address and there's things we respond to, and there's meetings we go to so that we can further change. Not by anger, because anger doesn't last long enough. Anger disappears in a 24-hour news cycle. But we love people enough to make a difference, to make a stand, and believe that what God wants to happen in this area will come to pass. But in order to be effective, we cannot yield to the spirit of division. 
We cannot be filled with the rhetoric of hate. We cannot be racist in any way. Now, Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Now, God is love. The fire of God is the fire of love. And so when you get closer to God, he will burn out things that shouldn't be. And so you can make the decision today that I'm going to deal with the spirit of division. I'm not going to be racist, that if I have any racist things in my mind or past, I ain't going to do that anymore. Now, some people may be harder because of the things you've seen, the things you've experienced, the things people have done to you that you're trying, but you have in the back of your mind what you went through because we have people of all different backgrounds. But the thing is, in order to be effective in bringing change, we have to let the past go. But what if the past still hurts? Then we have to believe we serve a Jesus that heals a broken heart. That he can remove the things in us that are holding us back from going forward. I didn't say you have to forget the past. I said you learn from the past, but you still let it go. We'll stand to your feet. Didn't cover everything, but I began the conversation. And so we're going to take a moment before we go. And I want you to just bear your heart before God. Close your eyes. And you talk to God where you are in this issue, whether shame was the issue you're dealing with, discouragement, or whether it was racism and the spirit of division. And you talk to God. And you ask for the fire of his love to cleanse you from it. And you ask as you draw closer to him in these next few moments for the fire of his love to clean you, to purify you. And what's going to happen is the fire of his love is going to move through this place. You may feel something, you may not, but you're going to leave this place different. So I want you to concentrate on Jesus right now. We're going to sing for about one minute and we'll watch what the fire of love does. We're going to have our altar call and we're going to go home. So focus on Jesus as the fire of his love ministers to you. Go ahead, Minister Dathan. All I hope you enjoyed today's message. We never want to close a broadcast without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if you've never asked him into your heart, you've never made him your Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me today and mean it from your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me, but on the third day, you raised him from the dead. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me now. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live this Christian life. If you prayed that prayer and meant it from your heart, we believe you've been born again. We ask that you email us at info at FCCGA.com. That's FCCGA.com to let us know about the decision you've made for Christ today. Have an amazing day.